Well, if you haven't already seen the sermon title in your program, it's God and Money, and the passage is The Rich Young Ruler. So with a title like that, I thought I'd better get a few things straight right at the outset. Here are four reasons not why I might be preaching a sermon on God and money. Number one, Amy feels really comfortable talking about money. Actually, although I really like money, I don't want to talk to you about how to spend yours, so the truth is I'd rather not be doing this either. Number two, the church is not doing well financially, and this is a passive-aggressive way of soliciting giving. Wrong again. On the contrary, we're doing fine financially. This sermon wasn't driven by financial need, but rather by a desire to take Jesus' words seriously. In our series, The Quotable Jesus, we're looking at some of Jesus' most famous saying, and Jesus speaks more about the topic of money than any other economic issue. Number three, City Church does not like wealthy people and wants us all to live in a commune. Not true again. We love all people as God does, and I hope you'll see by the end of our time together God's love for the man in this story and for us as well. And number four, only really rich people need to hear this sermon. Well, each of us in this room is rich. I don't need to belabor the reality represented by this pyramid from a recent global wealth report, even if you can't see the details. I'm guessing most of us fall in that second lighter blue column, people who make between $10,000 and $100,000 a year. Now, if we add that broader, darker color blue at the bottom, the 73.2% of people in the world who make less than $10,000 a year, we are wealthier than 92% of people in the world. And we can look to the eight people who have more than us, or we can look to the 92 people who have less. But the reality for us is we are all rich. We need to hear Jesus' words. With that aside, let me read the passage. I'll make some comments about each verse, and then we'll look at what this might mean for us today. Matthew 19, 16 to 30. You can find it on page 1500 in your pew Bible or follow along with the words on the screen. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep his commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said, What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, who then can be saved? 
Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Let me stop there for now. The first flag on the play, so to speak, appears in verse 16 when Jesus calls the man teacher. Now, generally speaking, when people call Jesus teacher, it's not a good sign. Jesus is first and foremost Lord, and only when his lordship is accepted will his teaching be followed. The man asks, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, Jesus' response in verse 17 may seem like he's dodging the question, but in actual fact, he's shifting the focus in two subtle ways, from the man's doing to God's goodness, and from getting to entering a way of life. We know from Luke's version of this story that this man is a Jewish religious official, perhaps a synagogue leader. He knows Jewish law. So Jesus starts there citing six commandments, and I want us to pay attention to what Jesus does here. The first five he cites occur in the Ten Commandments, and in fact, they're all commandments that deal more with people. The Ten Commandments were composed of four God-oriented laws and six human-oriented laws. Jesus lists commandments five through nine here, just in a different order. The last commandment, Jesus adds, is the second half of what he will present in Matthew 22, 37 to 39, as a summary of the whole Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's curious that the only human-oriented command Jesus doesn't list is the tenth one, do not covet. It's also interesting that Jesus inserts the love of neighbor in place of that. For indeed, the man's ultimate unwillingness to give to the poor at the end of the story soon calls into question whether he really does love his neighbor. The all these I have kept may sound self-righteous to us, but in fact, this would have been the anticipated response then. But underneath the rigid obedience, Jesus senses honest despair and cuts straight to the heart And verse 21, if you want to be perfect, meaning complete, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Jesus now makes explicit what he was hinting at in verses 17 to 19. The man's problem is with making his possessions God, thereby violating the first commandment have no other gods before me, as well as the 10th commandment, do not covet. Because his possessions are actually possessing him, he must release them in order to fully surrender to God. As the saying goes, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, then he isn't Lord at all. And the man, after doing the cost-benefit analysis, walks away sad because he has great wealth He hears only Jesus' first part of the proposal, not the second. He allows the sell your possessions to drown out the you will have treasures. Come follow me. I want to pause here for just a moment because I think there's a tendency to be too hard on this guy. Yes, he serves as a sober warning for us. But we also don't know if this was the end of the story for him. It's possible he changed his mind after this account. 
but we do know Jesus' reaction to him. Matthew doesn't say it explicitly, although I can hear it in Jesus' response. But Mark includes it in his version. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And in fact, it is love that prompts the phrase we're looking at today. Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Notice Jesus doesn't say, yeah, I didn't really think he was that serious, or yeah, like you've really kept the command to love your neighbor when you have great wealth and he doesn't even have food. That's what you or I might say or think. But Jesus, full of grace and truth, uses the teachable moment, essentially telling his disciples sympathetically, wealth and status make it difficult to surrender because we think we have more to lose. We don't realize all we have to gain. Jesus is simply using a figure of speech here, drawing on one of the largest animals utilized at the time, the camel, and the smallest item found in the home, the eye of the needle. And the disciples' astonishment in verse 25 is probably because in their culture, wealth was a sign of God's favor, whereas Jesus says it may be an obstacle to it. But let's be clear. Jesus is not saying it is impossible for the rich to follow him. He's just saying it's hard. It will take a work of God. But then again, it always does. I didn't read it, but in verses 28 to 30, Jesus assures the disciples, and by extension, us as well, that whatever we sacrifice will be worth it in the end, that on that future day, at the renewal of all things, when he returns and establishes his kingdom fully on this earth, we will be rewarded a hundred times what we gave and will inherit eternal life. And he concludes by stating this reality, for many who are First will be last, and many who are last will be first. So, what does this story mean for us? I think I've seen two tendencies when people try to interpret what this story might mean today, either a literal view or a general view. The literal view would say we should all sell all we have, give to the poor, live community in absolute poverty. Not a very popular view. The general view would back up from the topic of money at all and say whatever one thing is getting between us and God, we must be willing to sacrifice. Now let me say just a word about each of these. As for the literal view, we should sell everything we have and give to the poor. You'll be relieved to hear that I reject this view. But I don't reject it because I find it personally convicting or socially irresponsible I reject it because I don't think it's a good biblical interpretation. Let me give you just a few reasons why. For starters, we have several examples of people who come to Jesus and become genuine disciples, and they're not challenged in this way. They're simply told, follow me. In addition, we have other instances where Jesus prescribes something different than sell all. In Luke 19, which is strategically located just after this story occurs in Luke's account, we see Jesus' interaction with wealthy Zacchaeus. And there the prescription is not all his possessions, but half. 
We also have examples of wealthy disciples who use their resources for Jesus' work, not the least of which is Joseph of Arimathea, who buys Jesus' burial tomb. Furthermore, Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 5 to feed the hungry, clothe the naked. How are we going to do that if we give all our money away? And finally, if we look at the rest of Matthew 19, the immediate context of the chapter, we'll see the entire chapter is focusing on caring for the household, subjects like marriage and children, both of which require some amount of possessions to live faithfully. There is a lot more that could be said about how the Bible is not against wealth or even the material world and is into caring for creation, but I will leave those topics for another time. Suffice it to say, Jesus is not advocating we all enter a commune and give our resources away. At the same time, I think the general view, give up whatever gets between you and God, while it gets closer to what Jesus is getting at, still misses the mark. Let me explain. It is true we must be willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to worship him above all other gods. And as John Calvin has pointed out, the human heart is an idol factory. We make gods of all kinds of things. Yes, money, but also status, intellect, others' approval, health, gratification, etc., And so, yes, we would do well to pause and ask ourselves, honestly, if I were having this conversation with Jesus, what would he say I need to give up in order to follow him wholeheartedly? And yet, I fear we bypass a difficult teaching of Jesus if we only see this generally. If we're to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, that is not limited to, but certainly includes how we spend our money. I found the words of one commentator on this subject quite convicting this week. That Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. Ouch. Meaning the more we want to sidestep around the text making it appear Jesus isn't actually confronting our wealth, the more we may need to hear what Jesus has to say. As with many things in life, the true test of its importance to us is how we react when it's taken away. See, we treasure our treasures. So here's a diagnostic test we can all perform this week if we have courage. How easily can we give money away to someone else in greater need? How easily can we give one of our possessions away without getting something back? Now, some of you here, I know, because I get glimpses of it, are very generous people. And you give quietly, as anonymously as you can, in ways that truly bless others. But most of us here, and I would put myself in that category, have a really hard time prying off our little paws on what we have because we've worked hard for it. It's probably safe to say in our first world context, we all care a little more about money than we think we do. And how could we not? We faced a constant barrage of advertisements every day telling us we must buy this or buy that. You can't even fill your car with gas without being bombarded with messages of more. 
In just a few hours, roughly 100 million people, myself included, will be watching the first few commercials of Super Bowl 52, where millions of dollars are spent on 30 seconds trying to convince us to buy things that will not fully satisfy. Now, I enjoy watching those Super Bowl commercials, partly to stay connected to culture, partly to celebrate the creativity of smart people who are sometimes communicating messages powerfully. But we are simply foolish if we think our culture has no effect on us. Remember Peter's astonishment in verse 25 when Jesus said something that went against his culture? If Peter was in the constant company of Jesus for three straight years and still needed a reality check, how much more do we? And here is the crux of the matter. Jesus isn't questioning the role of money in this man's life because he is needy and jealous. He's questioning it because he loves him and he wants what's best for him. Jesus knows that money, while it is a great gift, is a poor God. One translation of Psalm 16.4 says this, the gods whom earth holds sacred are all worthless and cursed are all who make them their delight. Those who run after them will find trouble without end. I think we know deep down money isn't everything, even if we all want a little bit more. We know the research on the benefits of giving to others, the studies that show that people who give their time and their money tend to be happier. We know rich people aren't necessarily happy. Years ago, when I lived in Vancouver, British Columbia, which happens to be a hot spot for the film industry, I had a friend who was preaching for the first time in his 70-person church. And so I asked him Monday morning, how did it go? And he said, I was pretty distracted. I said, why? He said, Robin Williams came into the church and sat in the back pew and wept the entire time. Friends, money, success, and fame do not necessarily translate into happiness. I like how one writer summarized our text, quote, Jesus wants to save us from the curse and endless trouble of running after the God of money by teaching us the joys of simple living, following Jesus, and of enough is enough, end quote. And this will require both an inward mentality as well as an outward reality. If we focus only on giving away our possessions, we're going to degenerate into empty legalism. And if we focus only on the inward attitude, we deceive ourselves. For as Richard Foster says, the inward reality is not a reality until there is an outward expression. We can talk all we want about money not being that important to us, but until we really give it away, We haven't experienced the freedom. We must, in a very real sense, put our money where our mouth is. So how do we do that? I am trusting the Holy Spirit to make that clear to each one of us. This can look a myriad of ways. Here's just a few. Maybe the next time you write a check for your child's field trip, you can give a little extra to those who can't afford to go. 
Maybe a portion of your income can go to support an organization doing God's work in the world. Some of my favorites are World Vision or IJM, International Justice Mission, or Urban Promise out in Camden, New Jersey. Just for full transparency here, when you give to City Church's general operating budget, a portion of that goes directly to our City Church partners, who frankly are all doing good work uh, caring for the poor. In fact, our board recently made some changes so that over time, by God's grace and your generosity, we hope to double that percentage. We're trying as an institution to take Jesus' words seriously here. Maybe with Lent approaching, you will join Christians throughout the world who use this season to forego something so that others will have more. Whatever it is, we can all experiment with giving up something we value as a tangible expression of our devotion to Jesus. For if we take seriously Jesus' invitation to follow him, it will include total surrender of every aspect of our lives, including how we spend the money he has given us. As uncomfortable as it may be, as countercultural as it is, God wants us to follow him with everything we have. If he isn't Lord of all, then he isn't Lord at all. But this isn't because God is out to spoil our fun, and it isn't because God needs our money. What an absurd thought. It's because he knows what is best for us. He knows that money is simply a counterfeit God, a poor substitute that will never satisfy. It is fleeting. It deceives. It consumes. It cannot deliver on its promises. Instead, God longs to be our rock, our sure footing. He invites us into kingdom living where what we gain will not be destroyed by moths and rust, where we really can take it with us when we die. So today, when confronted with Jesus' words, go, sell all you have and give to the poor, may we, unlike this young man in our story, do a thorough cost-benefit analysis May we not only acknowledge the cost, which admittedly is great, but may we also acknowledge the benefit. You will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. May we refuse to allow the cell of that equation to drown out the me. Let's pray. Oh God, this is so not what we hear every day. Everywhere we look, we need to be reminded of truth, and yet we know we've seen it. And we ask you would help us see it again this week. Help us see clearly even more the emptiness of pursuing these counterfeit gods. Oh God, pry our sticky little paws off all that we hold dear, that we may follow you and enter real life that we may love our neighbor. We know this is the good way to live. You call us to this because it is for our good, but it is also for your kingdom to come more fully on this earth as in heaven. We pray that would happen through our lives. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.